Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Illinois still has a redlining problem. Decades ago, the government labeled black neighborhoods as high risk for home loans. And we're still feeling the legacy of this discriminatory policy today. In 2020, WBEZ and City Bureau found that for every dollar that Chicago lenders invested in mostly white neighborhoods, they only invested 12 cents in mostly black neighborhoods. How can urban communities of color break the cycle of disinvestment? Guest host, Colette English Dixon, Executive Director of the Marshall Bennett Institute of Real Estate at Roosevelt University, welcomes Ralph Martiri to explain a proposed new state program. If you have listened to our last few episodes, you know that Ralph is the Arthur Robloff Professor of Public Policy at Roosevelt University. He also serves as the Executive Director of the Center of Tax and Budget Accountability, a bipartisan think tank. This episode is the last in a three-part series on the CTBA's work to address racial and economic disparities. Enjoy. So good morning, Ralph. It's so nice to have you on the Roosevelt University podcast today. Oh, it's great talking with you, Colette. What's new? Well, you know, it is a beautiful day in Chicago, but there are always fun things to talk about, especially around the equity proposals that uh, CTBA has been working on with the state of Illinois. So we have some time to chat about a couple of those, if that's okay with you. Sounds great to me. So I know that you have had a couple of other conversations about some recent equity work that CTBA has done. But just in case our listeners on this podcast are not familiar with the organization, can you just give me a thumbnail background review of what CTBA does and what its work with the Black Caucus is intended to accomplish? Yeah, so we're we're a very odd duck. So we're a think tank that's technically not nonpartisan, we are bipartisan. So I have a board of directors that has both Democrats and Republicans on it that don't particularly like or trust each other at all. But that, but that's great for us because our, our organization's mission is to promote social and economic justice through adequately financed public services that are designed around best practices. So what we basically say is leave your ideology at the table. Look at what the best practices are to provide, let's say, education, healthcare, whatever. Look at our demographically driven needs. Let's match those two things up together. Here's the cost of funding best practices Mm -hmm. to meet those needs. And we know that if we do that, we could generate positive outcomes. Because a lot of the times the public sector is criticized for failing to produce positive outcomes, but no one asked the capacity issue. Did it have adequate capacity on the front end to generate the outcomes we all want on the back end. Education is one of the key areas. That everyone complains about what a broken education system America has. And when you actually parse through the data, 
you find some very interesting stuff about education. And this actually ties into the Black Caucus and what we do. So I'm going to go down this path. Okay. So a few years ago during Barack Obama's presidential administration, I served on a federal commission in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education called the Excellence and Equity Commission. And we were charged with looking at whether or not systems of finance and public education were contributing to gaps in attainment. Okay. Surprise, surprise, they were. They were. But one of the interesting things we found out that really confirmed the education system is not so much broken as it is underfinanced to educate all kids was looking at how the U.S. compared to other industrialized nations on the PISA exams, the big international exams, where the U.S. consistently scores at or below average, just midland results, math, science, et cetera. And we all say, well, why can't we be more like Finland, which is always number one in the world? Well, we were able to disaggregate outcomes by income level, and we learned something amazing. School districts in America with zero to 10% poverty concentrations had the highest PISA scores in the world across the board, highest. Not surprising. Not surprising. And then from 10 to 20% poverty, fourth highest in the world, highest for those schools systems internationally that have similar child poverty counts. Our, our, our PISA scores fell off the map when poverty got over 20, 25%. Well, we then mapped that over resources, and guess what? Our most under-resourced schools are the ones with the greatest poverty. So it's not like America has forgotten how to provide a quality education. It's we don't fund it equitably for all students. And then we dug a little deeper into the data and found a disproportionate number of uh, Black and Latinx students were sort of in more low income concentrated school districts. And so not only was our system classist from an income standpoint, it was racist structurally. And and that led us to our work with the Black Caucus, the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus in Illinois. I've been working with them and our organization's been working with them as a technical advisor for years, uh, mostly because we've identified these kinds of flaws in our basic systems of finance as they relate to the delivery of the public services. And when you analyze the flaws, you see they, they create inequity, not just by income. Of course, they do by income, but also by race and ethnicity. And that's a problem. And so we've been trying to address those problems with structural racism and otherwise inequities in our system. And, uh, and the Black Caucus in Illinois has been our strongest partner. So we've worked with them for years and years on everything from education to healthcare to social services to believe it or not, how to fund the pensions because if we don't adequately fund the pensions and so they're consuming too much of our current revenue, then you don't have enough money left over to fund services and all that other stuff. So we tie all that stuff together and, and, and we work uh, really collaboratively with the Black Caucus as a technical advisor trying to suss out policy initiatives that address these structural flaws and and also suss out how to pay for them. Paying for them, an interesting problem, especially in the state of Illinois. So understanding that a lot of the work that you've done has uncovered the inequities in funding education in the state of Illinois. A key component of how we fund education in this state is through real estate taxes, which goes directly to kind of the valuation of communities of color. 
there's a very dotted line, or maybe it's a solid line relationship between the two of those, and then the ultimate economic outcome from those communities, right? So I want to talk about this whole systemic racist structure as it has impacted housing, and especially around the city of Chicago, because I think many people can actually look and see it uh, tangibly on a regular basis here. But I want to start with the funding piece and how systemic racism in these communities has impacted the tax base. Because I don't think many people really know how closely aligned housing values, neighborhood, real estate taxes, and education are connected. And that that racist structure that's impacted one has flowed, flows all the way through. So can you just give us, you know, just a thumbnail transparency on how education is funded in the city of Chicago, in the state of Illinois, and how that may tie to neighborhood valuation and housing issues? Yeah, and, and, and the, the tie is sort of the converse of that. So education funding in Illinois is more reliant on local property taxes than in any other state. So in your average state, 46%, of, eh, a little less than that, 44% of the cost of public education is paid for by local property taxes. In Illinois, 67% of the cost of public education is paid for by local property taxes. And just a so quick question, just a quick question on that. That's a huge, huge gap. Yeah, um, we that's are the outlier. 50% higher than the average of every other state. Has this been a long-standing practice in Illinois? Okay. Yeah, it's been the the evolution of the primary responsibility to fund education away from the state and state-based taxes and down to local property taxes has really been going on in Illinois since the middle 80s. And it's been in response to the state's fiscal problem. So the state of Illinois has a structural imbalance. That means it's revenue growth on a year-to-year -year basis, just adjusting for inflation and changes in population is not enough right. to support the same level of services that was provided in the prior year. So over time, as revenues grow significantly slower than costs, the state has made a number of bad policy decisions that are highly irresponsible. And one of them is to say, hey, we don't have enough money to fund schools. Let's just make the local government do that through local property taxes. So literally, we're the outlier there. We rank number one in the nation in reliance on local property taxes to fund education and 50th in the nation in reliance on state-based taxes like the income and sales tax to fund education. So we've basically tied the quality of education a student's going to receive to the property wealth of the community in which the kid lives. That's a highly inequitable way to fund schools, right? Totally. So your Barringtons, your Wilmettes, your Winnetkas, your River Forests, can afford very high quality public educations for their kids because they have very high property values. But then you go to your, your Daltons, your East St. Louis's, your Pembroke's, uh, et cetera, they cannot. And, and there's a direct line correlation there. And once again, so that is it, that is one of the structurally racist components in our education funding system is because African-American students are very much clustered in the lowest property value communities. And so over time, what you see is these schools then are significantly underfunded. Now that creates an economic problem for the community, right? Right. Because the correlation between educational attainment and wage and job and employability are growing and, and are not only statistically meaningful correlations, 
but are growing over time. And so just to give you a quick number, in, in 1980, for instance, a college grad earned about 30% more than a high school grad. Well, today it's about 47% more. So, you know, if your K-12 education system is underfunded, then the kids aren't developing the numeracy and literacy skills they need to become competitive in a modern economy. And employers notice that. Right. So they tend to not locate in communities that have bad schools. So that further drives down property values because you can't bring in these outside businesses. And then what ends up happening, and, and this is part of actually what we've worked on with uh, Illinois Black Legislative Caucus, which I just have to give a shout out to that caucus. If not for the Illinois Black Legislative Caucus, I doubt Illinois would ever pass progressive public policy. It's really the most policy focused legislative caucus we have in, in Illinois. And they've done a phenomenal job pushing an agenda that, that's progressive, but based on best practices. I mean, they've really, dotted I's and crossed T's, and they've been great partners to work with. And even though their initiatives are very progressive and rooted in social and economic justice, they actually create a better environment for everyone. So th these aren't, th these are policies that are broadly speaking really good yes. uh, for the state of Illinois. So I'm giving them their shout out. But, you know, over time, as, as properties get devalued, then you have another issue. So it becomes difficult, for instance, to rent out certain housing structures in these areas because you know the, the community around it doesn't have job opportunities, et cetera. Right. It, get, it gets very difficult to keep your commercial in place. So you end up having what? Vacant property. Now, I don't have to tell you with all this expertise, vacant property is a really, really, really bad thing uh, for property values around it. And, in, in areas of systemic poverty, they actually feed into the continuation of cycles of poverty over time because these vacant properties become crime centers. Uh, you know, the gangs move in there or drugs are sold there or prostitution happens there. Nothing good happens there Definitely. in any event. And they're very difficult to turn around because there's a, a lot of legislation with really good intent for, on things like, for instance, prevailing wage. So if you're going to do a development of a new housing complex or a new retail complex or whatever you're doing, you have to pay the prevailing wage in the industry to the workers on that project. Right. Well, if you comply with prevailing wage laws, you can't turn around these properties because it prices them way out of their market. So you'd spend more rehabbing, redeveloping, and putting the property in, in position where it could be utilized, then the market will bear in paying for that utilization. Right. So they stay empty. And, and that's a big problem. And so that's really one of the things we worked on with the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. So that's how this all ties together. The Illinois Legislative Black Caucus came to us and said, you know, do you have some ways to address this, these vacant property issues? And we thought, well, as things stand now, the, when the public sector invests in stuff like public housing, uh, it, it's got a lot of ongoing costs, right? Uh, right. Say a voucher, you're always paying for renewal of the voucher. It's a year to year cost. It doesn't go away. Or if you actually develop a public housing unit, and clearly you're paying to keep that public housing unit up and running over time. What if instead of these ongoing costs, we limit the taxpayer cost to just a one-time cost? And, and that cost would be 
the difference between, let's say, a private developer coming in, buying for, buying a property and rehabbing it, and the, and the market value of that property plus 10%. So now, if a private developer comes in, buys the property and, and puts it in a usable condition for whatever, housing, mixed use, commercial, whatever, they don't have to worry about making a profit because you've already given the differential between their cost of development and the market value, whatever that is, plus 10%. So they've got a built-in profit. So now suddenly you're taking these vacant properties that have really been you know, instrumental in maintaining this sort of structural poverty and putting them on market at value. And that drives up the value of other properties. And that generates more money for the schools and then makes the community a better community to live in. And suddenly, all of a sudden, you're creating a private market where none existed and you're getting rid of one of those real huge foibles that have stood in the way of taking communities of systemic poverty and turning them around. So, you know, there has been a ton of conversation over the past 10 months, more so than I've heard most distinctly in almost 20 years, talking about kind of the impact of systemic racism on the communities, especially, you know, sitting in Chicago, where it is quite clear that we have a tale of maybe three cities, the South side, the West side, and the North side. And the long-term disinvestment that has occurred that has led to some of that need that you are looking to address through this rehab, pro this rehab program. The capacity for the public sector, and to a certain extent, the private sector to engage economically, financially around supporting initiatives like this rehab concept? Is it really there? I mean, are we really feeling that there is a space on the state level to engage in helping to fund this gap? Or is this purely going to be a private sector initiative? Because I know you're working with Ida on it, Ida being the Illinois Housing Development Authority, which is a quasi-state platform. Is there really, you know, a place to get capital that can be extended into these communities to address some of this disinvestment that we're seeing and funding this rehab project? You know, absolutely. And so the, the part of the, the question that involves private investment, the reason we don't have private investment now is the lack of the ability to make a profit. Once you've guaranteed a profit, believe me, private dollars will go where profits are guaranteed. So I'm not, I'm not that concerned about generating some private sector interest in this. Now, from the public sector standpoint, obviously, the state of Illinois has some pretty significant constraints that said it can really resolve its fiscal problems in the next few years if it does some rational things with tax policy. That's not likely to happen? Well, but it could happen. And, and I think some of it will happen, actually. And the state has surprised us in the past. I mean, under Governor Rauner, if you recall, his first two years in office, uh, we had a temporary tax increase that declined and the budget deficit exploded. And because that budget deficit exploded in his third year in office, he still refused to support a tax increase, but on a bipartisan basis, uh, Illinois legislators increased the income tax from 3.75% to 4.95%, literally just to be able to pay their bills and, and overrode his veto. So, you know, things like that do happen. Right now we're at a point where our state budget is looking at about an $8.4 billion deficit. We only spend about $27 billion on current services, nine out of 
10 of those dollars go to education, health, social services, and public safety. So 30% roughly of our spending on those core services is deficit spending. And we're going to be able to get through the fiscal problems created by COVID-19 just fine uh, because of the federal relief pack. But then the ugly head of the state's own fiscal problems, its poorly designed tax policy are, are gonna really become exacerbated. And I think there'll be some pressure to do at least an income tax change, if not the sales tax change the state need. So I do think it, it can happen at the state level. And, and the cost of piloting, piloting out this program, and you've identified a few of the communities you'd wanna have a pilot in the west side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago. You'd also wanna do some, there's a lot of poverty downstate too. There's uh, one of the census tracts in Peoria is one of the poorest areas in all of Illinois. You have East St. Louis, you have Marion, you have Kairos, uh, you have Rockford. You have a number of communities that have really been hit hard. And the cost of piloting out a program like this, maybe 10 or $20 million, is pretty easy to find in a $27 billion budget. Uh, so I, I think that's doable. And, and you know, then if we pilot out the program and it looks successful, well, guess what? The federal government and HUD have been looking for ways to limit ongoing taxpayer investment in public housing and find one-time investments that generate markets. That's precisely what this program does. So if we can, if we can create a good pilot and we could show some nice return on investment in the community and from a public policy standpoint, then I think HUD would be pretty interested in maybe taking this pilot program and making it part of their funding matrix. I, I appreciate that, you know, proof will definitely bring about more interest and more engagement, but that's not something that happens quickly. I mean, the sort, even if you did a pilot program in any number of the smaller cities or you chose one of the you know neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, the play out of how this sort of program can actually impact the community is not something you'll see in three years, is it? I mean, it seems well, like this has got to be a longer term commitment for proof. Yeah, well, yes and no. So the EAV issue, so the equalized assessed value, the property value issue, that'll take a little longer to turn around. Uh, it's an important part of the equation and it's yes. the long-term part of the equation. Short term, you know, for every dollar invested in infrastructure project, you generally get an economic multiplier in your private sector of $1.60. And that's not me talking, that's Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's, the bond rating agency. And he's no left-wing liberal economist, in case you were concerned he was, when Republican Senator John McCain ran against Democratic Senator Barack Obama for the presidency. Andy was McCain's top economic advisor. So he's a Republican economist working at a bond rating agency. That's not the profile of a liberal. I just thought I would put that on paper. And, 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 and so these are his, his multipliers and they're based on actual analysis of what's happened in the past. So if you could take a dollar of taxpayer money and turn it into a dollar 60 of private sector economic activity, that's an immediate job creator, uh, especially in these communities of systemic poverty, right? You're really generating some economic opportunity that otherwise wouldn't have happened there. So you will see some immediate benefit. And, and that's the kind of thing that you could you could use to sell. Then obviously, and HUD understands that, you know, it takes a, it takes a while to de fully develop a private sector market in real estate and turn around EAV values. But if they see this happening and, and one of their priorities already is to 
you know, limit the amount of ongoing taxpayer investment and find one-time investments that generate markets. I think this naturally fits in with that philosophy and is sellable, honestly. Well, given that you're saying there's a more immediate outcome or a more notable outcome, I'm just thinking about looking at the communities that this program can potentially be most impactful for, the ones who are just at a point where almost anything you do should generate a positive outcome or a better outcome than what they're currently going through. I would imagine that some of the downstream effects, similar to what we're talking about, like the the effect on available funding for education, the attraction of employment bases into these communities that can help provide a general uplift to everyone, that to me is driven by both state capacity, taxpayer capacity or willingness to not fight their monies going that way and private sector interests going, we're gonna take a little bit of a flyer on this at the beginning because we know it's gonna prove itself out. A lot of this has real energy behind it kind of given what we've been going through in the past year. Is that energy sustainable? Is there really enough motivation or or just you know intent that we can get into this process which will take a while to get off the ground and be able to see this through before you know we get to the waning interest level and there's some other crisis that we have to look at in the state of Illinois or elsewhere sure because it's an infrastructure based project and it will generate even in the short term some immediate taxpayer benefits. And so let's talk about a piece of vacant property. So a piece of vacant property has very little EAV. Right. It, 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 that's equalized assessed value for people listening in. That's the value of the property. And so it's got very little property value. So it pays very little in property taxes, which means the property tax rate in the community is bumped up a little bit for everybody else because right. it's everybody one pays property. For that. Yes. Everybody pays for that. The, the way property taxes are determined, it's a very simple formula. And I know that people said, what, we're going to talk about property tax formulas, but it makes sense in this context. Your property tax rate is equal to the levy made by all the taxing authorities. So think about that as the school, the city, the park districts, the county, you know, all the local government agencies that say, here's how much money I need for the year. That's their levy divided by the EAV, the equalized assessed value of the property. So now your EAV is smaller because you have this vacant property. And because your denominator here is smaller, your rate is higher. Right? Now you're putting a property in at market value that's paying a higher rate. Your EAV is grown. Your rate is coming down for everybody. So everyone immediately starts feeling the benefit of this as you start turning these properties around. And then as a private market develops, you would hope that more and more of these projects take place. And eventually you get to the point where a community that was historically just, just in, you know, inundated with vacant property and had incredibly low property values is now getting property values moving up to lower middle income to middle income values without displacing anyone in the community. So ah, it's really nice. The it's not really nice. part. Well, because they're paying less in property taxes to stay in their homes. So that because the value of the other properties is reducing their taxes, it's actually making it less expensive for, for families to stay in long-term homes. So it's a win, win, win. 
And some of these effects would be felt relatively soon, although, you know, Chicago's on a triennial basis. Is that right, Colette? Yeah, so it'd it take is. three years to do the reevaluation. So yes. depending on where it came in the pipeline and the triennial, triennial reevaluation, you know, there'd be some lag time. But it wouldn't be that dramatic. And I really, I really think it's the kind of project that that's a win for taxpayers because it reduces taxpayers' costs on the front end and reduces their property tax costs on the back end as you put these properties online. It generates more money for the local school. So it's a win for the local school and it generates a profit for the private developer. So it keeps them interested in putting the money in the community. So it's one of those few policy alternatives that doesn't have negative unintended consequences that could possibly flow with it. These are all win, 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 win. And then of course you get the immediate benefit of the dollar 60 for every dollar invested creating a positive economic multiplier. So I think it's got really got a lot of potential. It's just now a question of getting it off the ground, getting it piloted, identifying a few communities, getting some developers in, et cetera. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. The developer piece is pretty important. I mean, given the interest that there is right now in the redevelopment of these historically disinvested communities and neighborhoods, a large part of that interest is in bringing people of color into those communities and neighborhoods to develop basically, you know, communities of color. That is not a large pool of people from what we've been able to determine. And there is a great fear when these sort of reinvestment opportunities happen around gentrification. And so while you have the mathematical argument that higher EAV against a static levy results in a lower millage rate against your value. So you actually aren't paying more for having a higher valued property. I would tell you there are a lot of people who don't see it that way. I mean, they are so worried because there has been this inequitable distribution of valuations in communities that have been challenged for decades. You know, how do we believe that this doesn't create that same. What's what's going on for decades is there hasn't been a program to make an intelligent investment to, to reclaim vacant property. So that's that's been one of the bugaboos that has stood in the way of a rational market development that benefits longtime residents. So this actually gets to what has created their problem. What they've seen is even even in property tax capped communities in Chicago. Property tax capped communities. Those are communities where the millage rate doesn't change or the the, the, our millage rate isn't really what drives it. It's our level. And so the, their communities in Chicago and Cook County do live under PTEL, the property tax extension limitation law. So these communities, the public sector entities are capped how much they can increase their levy on a year-to-year basis. Okay. And so your, your top amount is capped to CPI. And yeah. CPI has been very, very low. Yes. And so with CPI being very, very low, relatively flat, anywhere from, it's been under one point to 2.7 points over the last 10 years, depending on your year, uh, 
when you start putting these properties back on, you will then see the differential. The rate will come down. The rates are artificially high now. But as you put more in that base, that EAV growth will be substantial enough. You'll take your rate down. So, so it actually addresses one of the core issues that has really made it difficult for low-income populations to stay in generational homes because the rate keeps going up. Right. And, and you got, it, it, even though the levies aren't going up at outrageous uh, rates, the, the rate is going up very high because the property tax base is going it's down shrinking. and down. Right. Yeah. So this really addresses that very specific inequity right at its core. And we don't have a program that's done that. So it, it, it's really got the potential to make a big difference. And as far as private investment goes, uh, like I said, well, I should, I should put context. You know, before I took the job running a good government think tank, I was a business lawyer. I was a partner in a law firm. I did mergers and acquisitions and structured finance, those kinds of things. I was an evil corporate lawyer and pretty good at it. Thank you well, you've much. come back from the dark side. So you've yeah. moved into the light. I've moved into light. But what I'll tell you is the private sector is really good at seeing where there's a, where there's a guaranteed profit and taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And and this is a guaranteed profit of 10 points at a minimum. And, and if you can get anything more in your market disposition, then, you know, you've made 12, 15 point return. Are you kidding me? That's a, a pretty good return on investment, yes, as you it know. Is. It is. And, and so I'm really not that concerned about getting private sector dollars in there. Uh, and in communities that don't really have a lot of access to private sector capital. I'm thinking more downstate communities because really the city of Chicago does. It's just not going into these communities. Uh, it's going elsewhere. Right. It's just not going into these communities. It doesn't right. exist. Yes. But it has access. It just uh, the, the, it's just not coming here. And we're creating a an environment where that some of that money certainly will start coming here to balance out portfolios, et cetera. But in other communities, or your Rockford, your Peoria's, your Decatur's, your depressed areas of Illinois, we've got land banks. And land banks are looking for partners because uh, they come in and they acquire these properties and, and frequently are looking for ways to develop them to get them back on market. Well, this program works beautifully with the land banks and their intended utilization of their capital. So there's there's wins, not just in the Chicagoland area, but all across Illinois. And so when you find economic wins across Illinois, one thing that's really interesting about our state is that geographic politics can be worse than the party politics. Yes, especially against Chicago. Especially against Chicago. But when you've got a program like this that works equally well in Marion and East St. Louis and Decatur as it does in Chicago, you've got a whole different and broader coalition of legislators that that really span the ideological spectrum that'll be supportive. So it's, it's very much a sustainable program just because it generates benefits in communities all over the state and it sort of overcomes that geographic uh, political divide, which I think, frankly, is worse than the party divide. I mean, if you go downstate Illinois, the Democrats down there are easily as conservative as the Republicans, and and so what you're what you're looking is to to breach these or these ideological divides. So, how do we try to create scale here? Because one of the ways that this may be most effective as a program, even as a pilot to address the housing issues, both the ones around the lack of housing, then there's the affordability of housing, and then there is the valuation of housing. I mean, all of those things. 
we need scale. And is this sort of program something that is readily scalable? Yeah, it is. And that's where the HUD piece becomes so important. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting as we've been talking about this and you mentioned the partnership my organization has with Ida. And I should note, everyone listening to this podcast, CTBA is affiliated with Roosevelt University and it's because our missions align on the social and economic justice piece. And so my group, you know, naturally aligns with Roosevelt, which has been great about its long-term commitment to social and economic justice. But when you look at scale, it's, it's going to, HUD is going to love this. And that's the federal piece. And so when we worked with Ida, uh, one of the things that they quickly did was hook us up with some of the land banks. The land banks loved it. They want to take this proposal to the national consortium of land banks all across America. They think that they will get behind it. And if you've got land banks in South Dakota and Wyoming and Alabama and Mississippi saying this is a really good idea, then suddenly you've got a whole different political basis for support for HUD to get engaged in it. And and I think the HUD piece really does create the scalability piece. I think in Illinois, we could get to a certain point and, and probably until our fiscal problems are resolved, we couldn't really go beyond that point. We could have some nice successful pilots, but I think you know, an investment at, at the state level, I can't see one exceeding 100 or $200 million. And certainly, as you know, our needs way exceed that. Yes. But, uh, but I do think, I do think uh, HUD is the scalability piece and they could put in a significant amount of money to turning communities around. I love the idea that this is something that could be spread throughout you know, the communities around the country. I mean, while we are here in Chicago, very focused on what happens in our backyard, a program like this could be transformational for many communities of color or communities of poverty. You know, it doesn't happen. I mean, this is not something, and that's although we've been talking about it in the context of systemic racism, this is a sort of program that can be impactful in any number of communities that have suffered from disinvestment, be they triggered by, you know, structural racism or by just loss of economic power, I would imagine. And that seems to be a great way to bridge those partisan gaps that probably would show up pretty quickly if we just stay focused on what's happening in communities of color around the country. I think that's right. And, and you know, talking about the partisan gaps is important, Colette, because policy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It ha- happens in a political environment. And the most important math that my think tank does, and we're a math-based think tank, we do a lot of data-based analysis, is 50% of the votes in the legislature plus one. And to get the 50% of the votes in the legislature plus one, you need something that that really does go across ideological divides. You can't pass that on a purely liberal or purely conservative basis. And especially in states like Illinois, we're, you know, we're a Democrat state in national elections right now. We're pretty blue. But you look at our state politics, we're pretty maroon. We are we uh, we have a lot of red. And and so you, you just have to be able to recognize that reality and find uh, policy initiatives that really address the big concerns you want to address, but do it in a way that you get that broad political support. And this is one of those things that does it. Do you think that a policy like this one, the rehab project, can also be a good attractant to economic drivers in these systemically 
a challenge communities or are these or would it be a very distinctly separate effort? Because I think it's great you get better housing, you get more people in communities, you improve valuations, but you also need to develop an economic driver for those communities to stay vibrant for people to want to continue to live in them or whatever. Are there, is there a related sort of policy that's being considered to attract employment or attract businesses into these communities to help support this um, reinvestment in housing? Well, as we are conceptualizing it now, we want the pilot to be able to embrace mixed use redevelopment. So housing with commercial, right? So you could have retail on the first floor and, and rental on the second and third and fourth floor or condos or whatever it is. And that kind of redevelopment is, is sorely needed in these communities of poverty, which are deserts in so many different ways from a retail standpoint. And when you're, once again, when you're creating a built-in profit for folks to invest, and then through the leasing process of the commercial facilities, they can make even more, you really have an opportunity to start making a debt in systemic poverty. It's very forward thinking, and it really, it creates a private sector market where none existed. While I'm a big fan of mixed use, I also carry a large, a large spoon of like cautious pessimism? I don't know. Mixed use is not the panacea that it used to be. I think this pandemic has shown some of the chinks and the armor of the mixed use model, but I do agree that the profit incentive will be an attractant to the private sector. I just think how we can come up with a holistic approach using your rehab project as kind of the foundation of it and then growing from there is something the private sector would probably have a very keen interest in um, engaging in that conversation. Because I think the real estate industry is starting to be, I guess, honest about how it has helped perpetuate some of the challenges we're seeing in these communities through its past practices, which were, you know, intentionally biased and want to try to do something better and different. So how can the private sector potentially engage with CTBA or IDA or anybody on this right now? Or is this just a concept that needs a lot more work? before it's something that can be advanced and maybe actually executed? Well, we're in the, we're in the process of developing what the pilot program would look like. And so uh, there's really nothing for the private sector to weigh in on yet. The pilot program should be designed by the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. We're running through some analyses to, to determine what anticipated ROIs would be, rates of return would be. <laughs> I hate using acronyms. I use them all the time. I got to stop. And then other people use acronyms. I have no idea what they're talking about. So whatever. Uh, we're, we're in the process of doing, and we're partnering with a, with a couple of other researchers on identifying some rational ROIs for this kind of program and the targeted communities where it'd be piloted out. And then we need legislative support for the money to fund the pilot. So all that is going on right now. So the program will be, I think, ready to be unveiled sometime late summer, early fall would be my guess. And at that point, you know, the private sector will weigh in. That said, we have talked with a few private sector developers who love the idea. And we have, like I told you, talked with a number of land banks who love the idea. So far, no one in the industry thinks it's a bad idea. And every everyone seems to think that it fills a real need. And it fills it in a way that doesn't have a lot of red tape. I mean, a lot of times when the public sector is coming in to co-invest in the development, you know, the developers got to sign this, that, the third, the fourth, the fifth thing. Right. right. 
there's not that here. Here's your payment. Your payment's going to be whatever the market value is. The difference between whatever the market value is and whatever your cost redevelopment was. So you could prove that we could get three MI appraisers to tell us what market value is. And, and there you go. You get that differential plus 10 points. Okay. We all know what we get. One time, one payment. Here you go. That's very easy. And there's not a lot of ongoing monitoring or all that other stuff, right? Because it's a, it's a one-time investment deal. Did you do the work? Did you redevelop the property? Is it now ready to go into market? Okay. I, I, so it takes away a lot of the red tape associated with these things, I think, which, which the private sector tends to like. Now, the, the one caveat to that, I would say, is that we, we are talking about, my organization certainly is interested in, as is IDA, as is the Black Caucus, in ensuring that when the development work is being done, the workers look something like the community <laughs> in which they're working. Right. And, we and, do have and, a skill development issue there. We yeah, you have a school. That. Yeah, you do. And and so we, we do want to make that part of it that, you know, you're going to agree to hire X percent from the community. We haven't landed on what X needs to be. Uh, you're going to have to open up some of the building trades. And, you know, this Colette, the building trades have historically not been open to people yeah. of color. And we want to try to break through that. So there's there are some of those things that I think are natural benefits that you'd want included. It's almost like a community's community benefit agreement in the development, uh, but not nearly as extensive as a standard community benefit agreement. I think the main thing you'd want to do is get individuals employed who have historically not been given access to these jobs, and these are good jobs. I love the idea of you know creating a job platform alongside this. But again, we've got the chicken and egg thing. Always nice to say we're going to have those jobs available. We just want to make sure we have people trained for them. So that's another element that the private sector can potentially support and engage in. There's just a ton of interest in doing that right now. I think we've got great opportunity kind of coming out of 2020 to advance these sort of initiatives. And hopefully there is both community will and capacity along with legislative will and capacity to move these initiatives forward. So for 2021, I guess we need to stay tuned to see how CTBA and IDA and the Black Caucus advance this policy effort. I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed that your note that the paper, that the uh, red tape won't be too cumbersome. For some reason, I think everybody's gonna go, yeah, let's just wait and see. Because <laughs> nothing seems to be that simple at the end of the day. But is there some other initiative that just as we're looking to wrap up here, I want to be really sensitive to the fact that you have other things to do today, Ralph, but are there any other initiatives along this path around addressing the economic impact of systemic racism that CTBA is working on right now? Oh, yeah, we're, we're working on a number of things, a grant, pro, a college grant program for students. Now, I know that they've changed the terminology, but I'm an old man and I don't remember the new terminology. Remedial courses at community colleges now have a new name. Remedial was considered to be a negative term and I, I, and I just can't ever remember it. But, uh, you know, when we've had an underfunded education system, K-12 for generations, a lot of kids never had the opportunity through their K-12 experience to build the skills they need to be successful at the next level. The problem with that is they burn up a lot of their financial aid taking these courses that don't even generate credit for them, but make them qualified to take the four credit courses. And so we, we feel the state of Illinois should pay the full cost of those courses, period, end of story. And we also think that community colleges should be 
required to allow kids to bypass these courses if they scored a certain level on standardized tests like the ACT or the SAT, et cetera. Because right now they have the discretion, even if a kid scores, you know, adequate on one of those tests, proficient on one of those tests to put them in one of these courses based on their high school grades, et cetera, et cetera. We don't think that that's appropriate. And we, so there's a couple of ways we're trying to address uh, those issues that, that relate to education. We have a number of things going on in K-12 to create a funding tranche specifically to address K-12 structural racism, which we've identified uh, on a statistically significant basis, not just in Illinois, but nationally, really. We're working on a national education funding reform bill. I mean, we have a lot of irons in the fire, very small think tank, but we tend to be uh, active. And, and I, you know, I'm pretty proud of our track record. So here in Illinois, for instance, I authored the earned income tax credit legislation for then state Senator Barack Obama, who went on to do other things. I forget exactly. Just a few other minor things. And that's a really good equity piece. And we also, in 2017, I co-authored the state's new school funding formula, the K-12 fund, the evidence-based model. And that's really been a tremendous leap forward for K-12 education and funding from both an adequacy and equity standpoint. So we've been a very effective think tank. We don't just put ideas out there. We work to make them a reality. Uh, we're going to work to make this one a reality a, a, in addition to a number more. So thank you for asking, Colette, but uh, I'm not going to take the next five hours explaining the rest of our work. Well, I definitely have appreciated the time you have given us to talk about how CTBA is working to address systemic racism, you know, around housing and community development. I think the program that you're working on is incredibly exciting. I hope that the private sector will embrace it as strongly as you hope also, and actually as we need. It's really, if they don't embrace it, it is going to be another public policy program that will just flounder. And we can't afford to maintain or sustain these sort of outcomes in our communities around the country that have not had the benefit of public investment, private investment on a scale that moves the needle for them. So I wanna say thank you, Ralph, to what you and CTPA are doing. Thank you for spending some time with me today on the Roosevelt University podcast. And I look forward to kind of seeing what uh, CTPA is doing. And I'm gonna monitor this program. I'd love to find a way for us to work together on that, even through the Institute, if there's something that we can do to work with CTPA. But thank you for your time. Be careful what you ask for, Bella. That's okay. I'm up for it. I think we're up for it. So I'll look forward to that conversation. But thanks for joining us today. And I'll look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Excellent. Peace. Peace. Bye-bye. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.